You are listening to the preaching ministry of Faith Baptist Church. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at a uh, probably a familiar text, one that is not uh, too foreign to us. Romans is uh, probably a, a more familiar book. If you've been uh, in church a long time throughout your life, you've been a Christian a long time, this is probably a book that you've seen preachers come to. And uh, this is not going to be the kind of message where um, there will necessarily be a lot of commands or imperatives because really in this whole passage we're looking at, the first 11 verses of Romans 5, there are no commands, there are no imperatives. There's nothing where Paul says, Christian, now you must do this. So you say, Pastor Christian, what is the point of this passage then? Well, one of the many points of Scripture as we apply it to our lives is to comfort and encourage and bless us. Scripture can do that too, you know. Um, there are uh, perhaps some that would say, you know, every time you look at the Scripture, you've got to come away with an action step, something you need to do, a way you need to change your life. And that's probably good um, advice in general for Bible study, but i got to tell you, um, there are some Bible passages where God is not necessarily looking for you to do something. He might just want you to change your mindset about a particular issue in your life, or change an emotion in your life, or have a positive outlook, or just be encouraged or blessed in some way. And I think that's very much what Paul is looking for as he's writing these words to Roman believers. Uh, he wants them to be blessed. And by extension, that means you and I. As New Testament Christians, 2,000 years later, Paul wants to bless us with these words, uh, with what it means to be justified. I wonder if um, you know, we're in the streaming generation where, of course, much of the TV or media that we're consuming is coming from uh, these streaming platforms, Netflix and such. And so we're really kind of distanced from commercials, advertisements. I mean, you know, those exist too. You know, now you have the different tiers where you got to pay to not have advertisements in your streaming platforms. Kind of annoying that they've done that now. But for the most part, you know, we other than commercials on the subways and buses, you don't see or hear or engage with a lot of commercials. But if you grew up in the television generation, which is what I was, you know, as a kid born in the 90s, um, then you probably remember all of those as seen on TV ads. These come to mind. Um, those of you who can recall these from, you know, a bygone era, all of these ads were pretty much the same thing, right? Always different products, always something unique, but there was always this loud, um, energetic, passionate host showing the viewing public, you know, maybe a, a five-minute demonstration on how this brand new product that they're bringing to you is going to change your life. And the host makes you all of these grand promises about how this new product will just revolutionize, how you do all kinds of basic, you know, home repairs, or how you vacuum, or how you wash the dishes, how you clean your car, uh, you know, all kinds of things in your life that they promise it will help. The host offers a simple, efficient, and elegant solution for these basic needs. He also offers you as the viewer the best possible price on this particular gadget or gizmo. Then he says something we've all heard before. And if you're in sales especially, then you probably uh, sympathize with this, but we've all seen it on these ads before. They say, but wait, there's more. Or some version of that, right? And that's not all. If you call now, then you will get a reduced price on this gadget, or you will receive an additional unit of some kind, or a free offer, or something special that is only for you right now if you're watching this particular ad. The Book of Romans, if I can put it in this kind of casual way, is the Apostle Paul's sales pitch for the Gospel. He's telling us in much more than just a sales pitch. This is an extended discussion and argument and reasoning tightly uh, um, put together of why the gospel is necessary and how we can receive it, how it can become ours. He tells us why we need the gospel in chapters 1 through 3. And that is because we are all sinners. Everyone, Jew and Gentile, worthy of judgment. 
He also tells us that the gospel is all about Jesus. And he tells us this in verse in chapters 4 and 5 about what Jesus accomplished and also how to receive it. The gospel is God's eternal salvation provided through Christ. And we receive it by faith alone in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now in this chapter we're looking at today, chapter 5, Paul is going to demonstrate that the gift of salvation is a multifaceted gift. Have you seen those Russian dolls before where you pop the top off and there's another little doll inside? It's the same one, just smaller. And then you pop that head off and there's more dolls inside, usually a series of these until you get to a really small one. That's kind of like what the gospel is. Once you unpack it for the first time, there are more blessings than you expected. The gospel is like a gift that you can come back to over and over again. It's not the kind of gift where kids do this all the time at Christmas or for their birthday, right? They play with the gift that day, maybe even that week, and then what happens to it? It's forgotten. It gets tucked away in the corner of the toy bin or the toy basket or the playroom, never to be played with again. Brothers and sisters, the gospel isn't like that. The gospel is a gift that you open for the first time and oh, this is so rich, it's wonderful, you enjoy it, and then you come back to it, and enjoy it some more. And then you come back to it, and you get blessed by it, over and over and over again. It's a gift that never stops blessing you. That's why in this passage, Paul tells his readers, there's more to this gift than he has already told us. It's Paul saying, but wait, there's more. And he does this multiple times. Did you notice this as, uh, together, we read this with Brother Jose, starting in verse 3, right? He says, and not only that. He says that very same phrase again in verse 11. And not only that. And then he does this a different way. He, said, he gives us a different sales pitch, as it were, in verses 9 and 10. Twice he says, and much more. Much more. Beyond what I have already told you, the gospel has much more in store for you. The blessings of justification in Christ are so rich, so abundant, you can't mine its depths on the first sitting. You just can't. Paul can only repeat this sales pitch several times over before we understand just how profound this gift is. But wait, there's more. Today's message is really just an encouragement to you to enjoy the privileges of being right with God. Paul, like I said, doesn't give any imperatives, no commands, no instructions in this passage. But he does tell us what it is that we already possess. What we have in our possession, Paul expects that we're going to enjoy. Three times he says in this passage, because you are justified, you have something to brag about, you have something to be joyful about. Your spiritual prospects are so rich because of the justification provided for you in Jesus Christ. Now, the way Paul begins in verse 1, we recognize, of course, he's referring back to a discussion he's already had. So we're entering into the middle of his argument, of his reasoning here of why the gospel is necessary. He says, therefore, having been justified. He's referring back to chapter 4 and really even the previous chapters because, again, he's made this case. We're all sinners. We're all naturally depraved and um, estranged from God because of our sinful condition. So we need this salvation provided in Christ. We need to be justified. So now he says, having been justified, here are the blessings of that fact, of that reality. But of course, before we do that, I think it's important we lay the groundwork. What does justification even mean? What does that look like for the Christian? Well, justified is a legal term that indicates the innocent status of a defendant. Again, we know that, that, that earlier on, Paul is establishing this need for justification. So before the bench of God's courtroom, we are all guilty as sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3. We all rightly deserve God's judgment because of our sin. Naturally, 
we might hope to find some kind of a past. You know, maybe God will overlook my sin. And the way that we do that is by looking to our good works. Maybe, we'll, maybe God can look at my good works and see that that's good enough to be acceptable to Him. That's in our natural human condition. That's really what all religion is about, right? Doing good things in order to make yourself look good before a holy God. The problem is this. Our way is so perverse and so corrupt that no amount of works from the law can cover our sin. In fact, the law, as Paul argues in chapter 3, the law can only show you how sinful you are. He says this in Romans 3.20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law, friends, the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses, whatever law of God you can find in the Bible, it is simply a mirror that reflects back to you how sinful you are. It can only show you how far short you fall of God's righteousness. And it cannot offer any means of justification. Now, if the law cannot justify us, what can? Well, according to Paul, the question is actually, who can? Who can justify me? If it's not the law, what is it? Who is it? It's Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. The very next verse is, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Even the righteousness of God, faith in Jesus Christ. In these two verses, Paul really crystallizes the gospel message for us. How is it that a righteous God in heaven makes sinful men innocent? How can he make guilty people go free and still be a just God? It's a wonderful paradox. It really is. On paper, it shouldn't work. But in God's perfect plan, He takes a corrupt, perverse human heart and He infuses it with the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. In the work of Christ on the cross, which, of course, we just observed today in the Lord's table, we see God's righteousness perfectly revealed. What Jesus did on the cross, and if you receive that good news by faith, that gospel by faith, then he declares us righteous. That's what justification means. By trusting Jesus as my Savior, there's nothing that changes about the fact that I'm guilty. I'm still a sinner. I still have a sin nature. What changes in justification is my sentence. Instead of guilt and judgment, God offers me innocence and um, freedom through the gospel. I can be declared legally righteous through the gospel. But he doesn't just change our guilty status as sinners by simply saying so, by his arbitrary uh, declaration. No, God had a means to make this happen. He did it through the death of his son. Jesus, as that innocent sacrificial lamb, hung on a cross, and the Bible says he took upon himself all of our sin, all of our wickedness and evil, upon his own body. He was my substitute. His bloody death on the cross means I can be made righteous and be declared legally innocent before God, the righteous judge. When I acknowledge his sacrifice on my behalf, I must trust that all the work that Jesus did for me on the cross is sufficient for my salvation. In other words, faith in Jesus and what he did for me means I don't need anything else. There's, I recognize there's no other means of this salvation happening, right? Paul makes it clear in this passage too. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. That excludes works. That excludes any possibility of me boasting about my own goodness. I have no goodness. Not before a righteous God. Faith, not the law, is the means by which God justifies the guilty. Faith in the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ confers on me God's righteousness and His legal declaration of innocence. We see this in Romans 4, verse 5. Again, just the previous chapter. But to him who does not work, 
but believes on him, Jesus, who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is accounted for righteousness. So what we see, and Paul argues this in the rest of the chapter, this isn't something just for New Testament Christians. Old Testament believers got saved the same way, he says. Men of the faith, men of old, like Abraham and even David, they recognized the only hope of justification that they had was through faith in God alone. It's the same for us today. Now, justification is a complex doctrine, but I really wanted us to understand what it means, because it provides the, the backdrop for the rest of this passage. If you are unaware of what it means to be justified, to be declared righteous in God's eyes, I hope you've been rightfully informed here this morning. Because if you miss it, then you're going to miss the extent of the blessings that come out of justification in your Christian life. Maybe theology and, and Bible doctrines are not your typical dinner conversation at home, or what you talk about with your buddies at work. But these truths about salvation should permeate how you think so they can permeate how you live. That's what Christ intends to do with this passage for us today. And now that we've laid that groundwork, we can follow Paul's reasoning here, his implications for, now that I'm justified, what does that mean for me as a Christian? I'm innocent and positionally righteous, in God's eyes, by virtue of Christ's death on the cross, now what benefits do I enjoy? What has God given me and blessed me with? Well, we can observe several within just these first 11 verses. And we're going to identify them and then explore how they affect our Christian lives. What does it mean for us today? The first benefit of being justified is that we now have, as he says in verse 1, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might be saying, that sounds really familiar, Pastor Christian, and it probably does. I want to distinguish what Paul is saying here from what we might be thinking of, the peace of God. The peace of God, which is certainly talked about in other passages, is primarily talking about this settled confidence we have in our hearts, that in a trial or through difficult times, God is in total control. I submit to his sovereignty and his goodness in my life. And I real, I, my life is at peace. I'm at calm, even through a storm, even through a difficult time. That's not what Paul is really referring to here. Peace with God is a little different. It's not a state of mind. It's a positional reality. It highlights a change of relationship status between God and man. If you have social media, then you know many of these apps, especially Facebook, I'm not really into the other ones, but I'm sure they have the same thing. Um, many of these apps have a relationship status line under your profile, right? Maybe uh, when you first got a Facebook account years ago, when you were single, um, you know, your relationship status line might have said single, or relationship, uh, whatever it might have said at the time. Then... When you got married, you changed that relationship status to married. Now, I never had the experience of that because I had Facebook, but I was already married. Um, but if that's you, then you know what this is like. As an unbeliever, your profile line under relationship status read enemy of God. That's who you were to God, his enemy, by virtue of your sin and rebelling against him. But when you get saved, your relationship status changes. Now it is no longer that you are an enemy of God. Now it reads peace with God. Peace with God. Once a sinner at war with the Lord and his dictates over your life, you are now justified before him because of Christ. And Jesus made that peace possible through his death. The cross is the only thing that could appease God's wrath against your sin and change that guilty verdict that was on your ledger to innocent, free, justified. Friends, do you enjoy that peace every day? Do you struggle with guilt over your sins or the temptations that you struggle with on a regular basis? Do you feel 
that, that in your Christian life, you're more like an enemy of God sometimes than his friend and at peace with him. Can I say this? How you feel does not negate the spiritual reality of justification. If you are saved today, it is always true that you are legally right with God, that you are at peace with him even now. Once you are saved, you are positionally righteous and you have total peace with the Lord. He no longer condemns you. He no longer holds judgment over you. Instead, he welcomes you to come back. I believe Pastor Swanson's been talking a lot about this in Sunday school with different uh, giants we face, temptations and, and, and besetting sins that hold us down. How do I deal with those sins? I go to Scripture. I see God's cure, God's solution for those sins. I confess and forsake them. And then I go forward, confident of my renewed and restored relationship with the Lord. So if you're not at peace today, you can be. If you're truly a believer, this peace is yours. It belongs to you. You are at peace with God. Justification not only gives you access to this new relationship, but it also gives you access to grace. The way Paul has constructed this phrase in verse 2, right? Through whom we have access by faith into this grace. It's a very interesting way he made up, made, broke this sentence. Because... The other blessings of justification that he mentions are all in a present tense. Uh, when he says things like, we have, we have peace with God, or later on, we rejoice in hope. These are all present verbs happening now. But this verb, we have access, is a perfect verb. And for you grammar geeks out there, you might know what that refers to, but for the rest of us, what that simply means is that there was an action completed in the past that has continuing effects now. So something was done way long ago in the past, and now there are, there are residual effects of that today that we feel. What this means is that our access to God's grace was totally accomplished on the cross of Calvary. There is no more grace God has to make accessible to you. It's all there. The, the reservoir is open. The treasure box is open for you to just take all the gifts, all the blessings of grace that are now made available to you by faith in Christ. But do you know that that grace continues to be available to you today as a Christian? It's not just for when you get saved. Grace is not just for the gospel when you get saved from your sin. It's grace that you need every single day. In fact, the way Paul speaks about grace later on in Romans, in the very next chapter, he almost talks about grace as this new way of life. He treats grace like this realm or a domain that we enter into. We've been ushered into this new kingdom of grace. And then he says, live like it. You're no longer under, under the domain of the law with its demands and expectations over your life. No, no, no. You are now under grace. It doesn't mean you can live however you want. It simply means that the law is no longer being held over your head. God no longer condemns Once you're saved, he no longer condemns you. Instead, you have obtained, by virtue of Christ's sacrifice, you have obtained God's favor and pleasure. As with justification, grace is only available through Christ, right? He says, through whom? Through Jesus, we have received this grace. Without him, there's no hope of God having any favor on my life. As a sinner, I deserve to be judged. I deserve his punishment. It's only right. But once I'm his child, he looks upon me favorably. Jesus is the agent of grace, but the means of accessing grace is also faith alone, right? He says, we have access by faith into this grace. Faith in the finished work of Christ, in his death and his resurrection, it opens up to all mankind the blessing and the favor of God. Accessing God's grace by faith, yes, that's how you get saved. But it is also how you live the Christian life. It is the realm in which you live. The question is, how has grace intervened in your life this week? 
How do you, how do you live this week knowing that grace is available to you? You know, if you're saved, grace should dictate how you treat your family, how you behave at work, how you serve at church. Grace should determine your heart motivations and your attitudes and your mindset. Is grace the only way that you stand, as Paul says here? He certainly believed that in his own life. You can read that in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He wrote, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly. I gave of myself and exercised myself in ministry more abundantly than anybody else, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God which was with me. If Paul could not stand in the ministry without grace, neither could you. None of us can. We all need the grace of God on a regular basis. And because you are justified, Grace is available to you. In Christ we have grace. In Christ we also have joy, Paul says. The third blessing of justification. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The blessings he's already talked about, grace and peace, those are present realities, right? We can experience them right now. But hope is a future thing, isn't it? It's something that points ahead, points forward to a time when he says God's glory will be revealed. What's he talking about here? Well, he's talking about the return of Christ. The second coming. When God's majesty and power is going to be put on full display. I mean, the way Jesus talks about his return, there's going to be angels and trumpets and all kinds of cosmic signs and wonders that are indicating this is the Son of God coming to earth for the second time. Except he's not coming to save this time, is he? He's coming to judge the world. He's the second coming. And yet for believers, it's not this ominous coming, is it? It is a wonder and glory that our Savior is coming back. He kept his word. The very last verses of Revelation, right? I am coming quickly. He's fulfilling what he said he was going to do. This future hope we can expect what happens exactly like God said. Paul writes about this for us in Titus chapter 2. We are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because I am declared righteous in the sight of God, I can anticipate and expect this upcoming event with joy. When my, my wife and I now have two children. That means twice... We've had the privilege of being expecting parents, right? They call pregnant moms expectant mother. So it's even in you know how we call and label moms, you know, there, there's that expectation, there's that anticipation of something great that's gonna come. There's a lot of emotions that come into your heart and mind uh, when a baby is on the way. But probably the emotion that crowns them all is joy, isn't it? If you're a parent. There's nothing quite like waiting for that baby to come. You joyfully anticipate the baby's arrival. Especially for the first one, but it's for all of them, really. But you know that this child, this new arrival, is going to change your life forever. In fact, you're reorienting your life for nine months, waiting for that baby to come. And you're changing things about your schedule and working things out in different ways so that when this baby comes, you're ready. Right? And yet for all of the hassle and all the, the hubble that you go through to get ready for the baby, it doesn't diminish the joy one bit, does it? It only adds to the excitement and the intensity of that baby coming. Brothers and sisters, we have a future arrival to look forward to as well. Unlike a baby, it's not coming in nine months. I don't know when it's coming. None of us do. We do know, though, it is coming. The coming of Christ. The Lord's arrival. The question for you and I is, are we joyfully expecting His return? Does His second coming excite you, animate your Christian life? Are you serving Him and seeking to glorify Him with an intensity and an excitement because you know He's coming soon? If you're justified today, then friends, that should be your outlook. Now that you're saved, you can't just live however you want. 
and throw your life away with reckless choices. No, you are justified. You are righteous in God's sight. So Paul is implying here, act like it. Prepare with joy for this coming arrival. And as John tells us, we can prepare by purifying ourselves now. He says in 1 John 3, verses 2 to 3, we know that when he, Jesus, is revealed, we shall be like him. Wow, what a glory. When I leave this mortal coil, I get to be like Jesus. I finally get to be conformed into his image, fully and completely sanctified the way God always wanted him to be. But we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. What is John saying? If you have this hope and expectation of Christ's return, then you are preparing for it right now by purifying yourself. Joyfully expect your Savior's return. I promise you it will change your outlook on how you serve and how you live for the glory of God. We're halfway through. We've got three blessings already in justification, right? God's peace and joy and grace. Now, Paul follows up the privilege of rejoicing in hope with our first but wait, there's more, right? He says in, um, in verse 3, and not only that, there's more coming, right? So yes, there is great joy and expectation in waiting for Christ's second coming. But there is also a glory and an anticipation when we experience troubles in this life. Very interesting what he says here, right? And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. A glory means boasting, bragging about. It. I don't know about you, but I don't typically boast about the troubles I have. I talk about them a lot. I share them with a lot of people, ask people to pray for me. I don't typically boast about them. I don't glory. What is Paul saying here? Why would I want to brag about the trials and difficulties I face in this life? Well, for Paul, the reason that we can boast about tribulations is because of what they produce in us as we wait, wait, await the Lord's arrival. See, it's very interesting how he compares these two. First, he says there's joy in waiting for Christ's arrival. But while we're waiting for that time to come, and we don't know when it comes, in the meantime, we go through the hardships and challenges of life with that same joy and expectation, with glory, with boasting. What an incredible thought. In isolation, our trials and troubles might feel meaningless and hopeless. But when compared to the joy of waiting for the second coming, it's all worth it. We realize tribulations have a purpose. So these afflictions and distresses I face, if I undertake them, with this biblical attitude or mindset, then they accomplish God's ultimate purpose of transforming me. My outlook on this trial from despair to hope. And I think we've all probably heard before, the only way that you can get to you know, good things in your life is by going through hard things. You endure the hard things first so you can get to the good things at the end. Things that are worthwhile. Well, Paul tells us exactly how God does this through trials. He gives us this uh, three-step process, as it were. And in fact, um, if you look at the first one, where Paul says, we know, so I can boast in trials, I can glory in tribulations. Why? Because I know tribulations produce perseverance. Now, James says this exact same thing with just a different word. It's translated differently. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Same Greek word. Patience, perseverance, another synonym would be endurance. Endurance. And Paul says you should know this. You should be fully aware that when God is putting you through a test, it's to make you stronger. It is to help you endure. To give you that persevering spirit. So when I am tested by God, I can respond in many appropriate ways. You know, God is not just expecting that you smile through the whole thing. No, there's lots of ways to respond to a trial that God looks at favorably. 
I can struggle, I can doubt, question, wonder, and hope in what God is doing. But what I don't do as a Christian, if I'm truly a believer, what I don't do is I do not lose faith. I do not buckle under the pressure so that I lose all hope in what God is doing. No, because that's not endurance, is it? To be a child of God means that I endure. And that's what perseverance is all about. I submit myself to God's plan. Even though I don't know fully what God is doing, I continue to follow Him the best I know how, with His grace enabling me. That's how a Christian endures trials. Again, we can go deeper into this. There's so much the Bible has to say about trials. But for now, we can say trials, first of all, produce endurance. Uh, one commentator I read um, used the word stick to it. That idea that I am sticking with it. I'm not losing my faith in God. I am going to go through this. And God will see me through. As I allow God to bear of this fruit of perseverance in my life, then secondly, my character is developed, right? Out of perseverance comes character. The idea of this word is a tested or proven character. So the question we face when we're in a trial is, will I hold up? As the trial gets longer and harder, endurance produces tested character. My moral compass doesn't shake. I don't compromise my convictions or values with the things I believe about God and His goodness in my life. My faith is not broken by the test. And then finally, the third thing that God is producing through my trials and how God transforms me is He leaves me with hope. And this isn't, oh God, I hope you get me out of this. This is a confidence in what God is doing. It's a strong hope. It is a faith that God will see me through this hardship. He's going to accomplish His plan in the end. That hope in the providence and plan of God is only produced by a believer who endures the trial and will allow His character to be tested. Right? You don't reach the end point of hope without first going through the tested and proven character, and you can't get tested and proven character without first enduring. So here's the thing with us. As fallen creatures, right? The second a trial hits, we want out of it. We don't want to go through it. We don't want um, any of the lessons God's going to teach us. We just want it to be over. But God says, no, no, no. That's not how I'm going to transform you. That's not how I'm going to change your life and conform you into the image of my son. Only by going through the trial can God accomplish his will in us. We might think we can avoid them, but we just can't. They will come. So, let your mindset be, Lord, bring them on, because I want to have that proven, tested character. I want to have the endurance that leads to the character that leads to hope. Lord, I want you to do all of your work in you through this trial. Paul experienced that. And he came out on the other side of all of his imprisonments and beatings and shipwrecks and persecutions and he could say, Lord, I glory in my tribulations. I'm boasting about them because of what you've done in my life. We can boast about our God too. The God who sought us through the dark tongue. Now Paul connects this idea of hope through trials with another blessing of justification. The next one, he tells us that hope is not disappointed. Right? God is not going to leave you hung out to dry. Now, that doesn't mean in the trial that you're going to get the outcome you want. But it does mean God is going to produce the outcome that He has planned for you. And that should give you great hope. The reason hope does not disappoint is because God's love has been poured out in your life. It has been given to you in rich measure through the Holy Spirit. Now, as painful as tribulations and trials are, you know, there are people can put up with a lot of hardship and difficulty if they know that there is someone in their life that they love and that loves them in return, right? This is why um, a biblical 
marriage is so important, right? Couples go through all kinds of heartaches, all kinds of hardships between the kids and the finances um, and you know, relationship problems, school and work and other things that bear down upon your marriage and your family. But when you and your partner are committed to each other, it makes the tests a whole lot easier, doesn't it? It doesn't mean the trial isn't hard or difficult, but it does mean you can bear through it because you know that there's someone committed to you. You know that there's someone that you love and that you care for, and they care for you in the same way. Friends, that is the Lord's guarantee to you. Whatever you're going through in this life, whatever hardships are bearing down upon you right now, what should give you great comfort is the outpouring of God's love in your life. It may be possible by justification. By the fact that God has declared you righteous, and since you are righteous, you are now His holy temple. Your body, He says, is a temple in which the Holy Spirit now dwells. And the Spirit of God is that agent of love, bringing to you, bringing to your heart, the innermost man, He says, the love of God. His love sustains you, motivates you, encourages you, and comforts you. His love is not just given to you, he says. It's not just, here you go. What's the word he uses in these verses? Verse 5. The love of God has been poured out. Gushing out. This is the same word used for over and over again in the New Testament. For the shed blood of Christ. Just poured out in abundance. A continual stream of God's love. His love, friends, should not just be a head knowledge. Instead, and I encourage you to let God's love be a deep and visceral emotion that the God of the universe truly loves and cares for you. I know we're, we're very much taught, and this is a very true thing for us and something we need to hear, that we can't just hear about the love of God, we need to know about His other attributes, His holiness and justice. But friends, God loves you. He cares for you deeply. Let that love sink in and let it be something that you experience in your life as you open up His Word, as you even see it in other people around you. Let the love of God come in. Let it be something that surrounds you in your life. Just like His Spirit assures us that we are saved, Paul says that later on in Romans, His Spirit also assures us of His love. God truly loves us. Now, in case you need a refresher, Paul, in the next few verses, um, tells us just what is the extent of this love. How far does God love me? How deep will he go? Well, God loved you, he says, even when you were without strength. Even when you had no ability to save yourself or bring yourself to him, God still loved you. We were weak and sick in our sin, but he still reached out to us. Not only that, but he loved us when it made no sense. It was illogical for God to love sinners, and yet he loved us anyway. Verse uh, 7 here is Paul giving us this kind of hypothetical situation where he says, you know, there are some people who might die for people that are good, right? People they love and care about. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you would say, I would die for my spouse. I would die for my kids. I would die for my best friend that I know loves me and cares for me. He's a good person. She's a good person. But you know, Paul even said that scarcely people like that. That's not a very common thing. Why? Because we love ourselves too much to give up our lives for somebody else. And it's a noble and good thing if you are willing to lay your life down for someone that you love. Except God's love was greater. Much greater. Because when we were ungodly, while we were still sinners, in rebellion against Him, He still loved us. And that is truly an amazing love. That I don't know that we can fully understand or comprehend. But it is how God loves you. We have mined the depths of what it means to be justified. We enjoy peace with God, His grace, this glory and hope and tribulations and trials. We revel in His outpouring of love. And now, finally, getting to the close here, um, justification also means 
that at the end of time, as we stand before God, we are saved from his wrath. That's what he says here in, excuse me, starting in verse 9. Much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. This is another, and that's not all moment, right? He says much more, much more. Since I am declared righteous, I don't need to live in fear of future judgment. There is no crime that stands on my permanent record. I am spared any future penalty. Once again, we see how God, though righteous, is able to set me free as a sinner. He does it through reconciliation. This word comes up multiple times in the, in the rest of the passage. Reconciliation simply means that there is a restored relationship between two parties that were once in conflict. Now, you might think, Pastor Christian, that sounds really familiar. He's just talking about peace with God. Well, they are similar concepts. The difference, though, is reconciliation in this passage uh, seems to have more of a, a legal bent to it, a legal application. So as Paul writes in verse 10, right, he says, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Even while estranged from God, not part of his family, I was guilty. I was at odds with God and worthy of judgment. But when Christ declared me righteous, he reconciled me back to God. So now, Paul argues, if in the death of Christ, I get reconciled to God, wouldn't his life bless me much more richly? Wouldn't I be saved by his life in a much greater way? Now that I enjoy this restored relationship to God, I am also rescued from judgment. There is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus even puts it this way in John chapter 14. He says, because I live, you will live also. There is no second death we await for those who are truly saved. Paul says finally at the end, we rejoice in God through Jesus Christ, through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. The, the, the focus of salvation and truth is always Jesus. It always comes back to the center. If there's any truth about salvation that excites you, that blesses you, that encourages you, you can thank Jesus for it. Because he made it possible. His death was, as it were, the first dominant to fall, and after that justification, and after that peace, and grace, and joy, and love, and reconciliation. All because of the death of Christ. What a wonderful salvation we have. I'll close with one story. In 2016, there was a man named Joseph Stank. I think I'm pronouncing that right. He was found dead in his home in Gage Park, which is a suburb of Chicago. Stankic was uh, 78, I'm sorry, 87 at the time of his death. And uh, he lived alone in a modest house. Uh, his neighbors who knew him said he lived very frugally. The only thing he had was a boat. That was the only uh, lavish, expensive thing that he had. That's why an unclaimed assets company was surprised to find that Stankic, who had throughout his life invested heavily in several mutual funds, left behind a $11 million inheritance, the largest unclaimed inheritance or estate ever in U.S. history. Now, Stankic had no will. He had no um, legal designation for where this inheritance was supposed to go. He, had, he never married. He had no children. All of his six siblings had already passed away, and none of them had children. So, needless to say, the lawyers had a big job to do in figuring out where was all this money going to go. Well, after a lot of digging, looking through family records and things like that, the lawyers found 119 heirs to this incredible estate. Many of them were cousins once or twice removed from Joseph Stankin. They never even heard of this guy. They never knew that they were related to him. But they got part of this inheritance. They got part of the pot. Many of them even lived in other countries outside the U.S. Now, you might be wondering, what did they all get, Pastor? 
well, after taxes and after all the years, I think it took like one to four years for a lot of these people because a lot of it was international. It took one to four years for the distribution. The average check that an inheritor received was $60,000. Some people got even more than that, I guess depending on how close they were. You know, the Son of God died 2,000 years ago and he left quite an inheritance, didn't he? For his children. He has justified you. And he brought you back to himself, into fellowship with God. All the blessings of justification are made available to you in Christ. But unlike Joseph's David's cousins and family members who had no idea who he was, you know your Savior. And the best way that you can thank him for this inheritance is to use it. Enjoy it. Be blessed by it. And if you've never received this gift before, you're sitting here and you say, these gifts all sound wonderful. I wonder how I can get them. Friend, I am happy to tell you, these gifts are made free in Christ. The gift of justification, of being declared righteous in the sight of a holy God, is yours. If you will simply trust in the Savior who died for you and rose again to make eternal life and justification possible for you. Let's close in prayer today. Thank you for tuning in to the preaching ministry of Faith Baptist Church. We are conveniently located in Corona, New York City, and are devoted to loving God and making disciples. For more resources and helpful information about our church, visit studygodsword.com. We'd also like to extend a personal invitation for you and your family to join us on Sundays at 9.30 in the morning for a time of interactive Bible study for young people and adults, followed by an 11 o'clock worship and preaching service. If you have young children, they will really enjoy our exciting Bible-based children's ministries in both the morning Bible study hour and worship service. If you have any questions about the church or would like to learn how to have a personal relationship with God, please give us a call or leave some feedback at studygodsword.com. We would be thrilled to meet you in person and show you firsthand what God is doing at Faith Baptist Church. Until next time, may God richly bless you.